0: Thank you for tuning in to Radicards.com. I'm your host Patrick Greeno, and today we have Josh Wolkin joining us again. Um, and Josh has actually moved away from uh, a role previously he held for a very long time and into a new role uh, with a new company. Previously, he was a uh, vice president of Huggins and Scott Auctions, and now he is the chief operating officer for Gre- Greg Morris Cards Inc. And uh, you know, if you had been following um, Radicards over the years. Uh, you'd notice that I interviewed Josh previously. Um, he's become kind of a good friend of mine. And so I wanted to hop on again with him to uh, give him a chance to explain what he's doing with the new company, well, what he's doing with his new role in this company and um, kind of the transition. And so uh, thank you so much, Josh, for joining us. I really appreciate that, bud.
1: No problem, Patrick. Good to talk to you.
0: Awesome, awesome. Yeah, really good to talk to you. Um, it's great to have you back on uh, online today. I wanted to... Uh, just jump right into it here. You know, a couple of things before we, before we get into the interview is that um, you can catch uh, Greg Morris Cards on eBay. Greg Morris Cards is their handle on eBay. So if you search for them, uh, that'll come up. Um, link to uh, uh, Josh Wilkins LinkedIn is also listed below if you're listening to this on um, YouTube and on the blog. So if you're on iTunes, you can go back and find those links in those places. Also, uh, check out Greg Morris Cards at gregmorriscards.com. So it's been over a year since our last interview. And in that time, you've migrated over to the new role as chief operating officer um, with Greg Morris Cards. Can you talk about the transition and take us through a typical day at work?
1: Sure. Um, So the transition was uh, personally not An easy one. Um, I had been with Bill and Huggins, well, Bill Huggins and and Huggins and Scott Auctions since its inception in 2003. I've been with Bill since 1985. I started with him as a kid um, who just liked collecting cards. And one day at age 13, he said, Hey, do you want a job? And I said, Sure. And that started me in 1985, working with him after school on weekends. Through college, after college, and so on and so forth. Um, and so, when it came time to sort of move on with it in a little bit of a different direction, from a personal standpoint, um, it was a difficult, you know, very difficult decision. Um, and but it was also one that we both kind of mutually agreed was it was a good time to to try it. Um, you know, that Huggins and Scott is is you know kind of well established. They're one of the leaders in the industry, Um, they still run excellent, honest auctions. Um, And actually, Greg approached me um, towards the end of last year, um, just really looking for somebody to help him grow his business. Um, And he wasn't actually looking for me, he just kind of said, do you know anybody I might be able to reach out to? And uh, as we progressed in our conversation, it kind of turned out that what he was looking for was something that I do really, really well. Um, which is primarily get stuff, talk to people and, you know, kind of create a consignment business, which is what I did with Huggins and Scott as well. Um, So it kind of became a good fit. And, you know, Huggins and I are still very much friends and almost family because we've been together for so long. But uh, but my business role is now with Greg Um, and a typical day at work is talking to people emailing people, uh, just communication with people within our industry. Um, because I've been around it so long. I have a lot of contacts. Um, I know a lot of people I've attended 31 of 33 national conventions. Um, and so I see people, I see people a lot. Um, and you know, I I would like to think I've created a pretty good reputation for myself as somebody who's honest and caring and, you know, and I know this industry really well. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm doing. And talking to people is kind of what I like to do. So here we are.
0: That's excellent. You know, it's. I think you're the one person I've met, or at least the first person I've met that has attended that many national conventions. Um, yeah. In the beginning, were you, I mean, I, and maybe you're doing this now even still. Do you take time at the conventions to go around and like shop for yourself? I know you're kind of not really a collector much anymore, but do you ever kind of just kind of peruse and see what else is out there just as like a a buyer?
1: Not for myself. I I think we may have talked about this in our first conversation about a year ago, but I, I, I stopped collecting things for myself. Now I really just collect paychecks to pay for, to pay for my life in Northern California, which is the most expensive place in the world to live and (laughs) and provide for my wife and my two kids and, you know, try and keep our lives as, as steady as we can. Um, so I, you know, at from thirteen to about twenty, I was a pretty big collector, um, and I collected what most kids collected who were growing up in the eighties, and that was eighties baseball cards, um, which now are worth very little. (laughs) And so, you know, I I got out of it when I moved to California about thirteen years ago. I sold all my stuff. Um, You know, I kept a few pieces that I happen to like. They're up in my office now. Um, but as far as personally going around looking for things that I might buy for myself, I don't do that. Um, and this national actually was very, very different for me than any of the previous 30 nationals. Um, because in the past I've always been behind Huggins and Scott's booth. I would show people auction lots. I would talk about our, you know, our auctions. I would show people our catalog. I would talk about consignments. Before that I was with, you know, Bill had a company called house of cards and we would sell at the national. So I would, you know, we had albums and stars and I would just, you know, I was a salesman, I guess, mm-hmm. um, you know, pricing cards for people and, and doing that. Um, and so most of my many, many hours at the national were just behind the booth as people approached us and talked to them that way. Mm-hmm. This national was the first time I actually wasn't behind a booth. Um, and I walked the floor. And so while I wasn't looking for stuff for myself, I was looking for stuff for us to buy for for Greg Morris cards Mm -hmm. or talk to people who had booths about consigning with us and kind of just developing more relationships and kind of letting people know, hey, this is what I'm doing now. And this is how we do it. And if you have anything that might fit that mold, let's talk. And it was super, super successful and I had a great time doing it. And I'm looking forward to doing it again next year in Chicago.
0: Yeah, I I really like the Chicago venue. Now with the uh, the Cleveland show that just passed, uh, you said you were really successful. Um, and you were able to kind of do some more of the like uh like the show floor walk to 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 meet those build those contacts build those relationships. Can you think of a couple pieces that you were happy to pick up to consign for people that that were like stood out among the other ones?
1: So. You know what? What we do at Greg Morris Cards, it, it's not so much individual pieces. Those aren't really what we go after. What the the infrastructure that we've created and the and the business model that Greg has developed over the years is volume. Right. Um, if you take the top five volume by volume sellers on eBay and you take numbers two, three, four, and five and you add them up, you don't get to what we do on a daily basis. <laughs> we literally list over twenty three hundred individual cards per day every single day of the week seven days a week 365 days a year
0: yeah
1: um and it's you know and so the, you know I, I bought I bought a few sets that were good uh, you know but but and, and on consignment it was you know sitting you know sitting and talking to people about consigning sets or large collections or large groups of higher grade raw cards that we do really really well for people okay so I wouldn't say per se that it was a there was a piece that would do it but I I could certainly say that I, you know, I ran into a, a guy who had pulled aside some stuff for us, and he said, "Oh, I'm really glad you're here. You know, I wanted to show you this tub that I have of high grade raw cards that I've kind of been setting things aside for for you guys for a while, and I just want you to go through it." So I sat behind his booth for, you know, an hour and a half or so, and went through a large. Boxes of really nice high grade stuff that he did end up sending to us, and they're actually up now and doing really really well, and he's pleased. So I would say that was probably a a good one for us.
0: Okay, so yeah, I mean those are that's a great example of that that you know even high volume you're able to pinpoint a couple of acquisitions that were notable, you know, um, as as blocks of cards, and I know high grade vintage in any capacity, uh, commons or stars. I've I've done great regardless of who they are. I've found specifically, and you've probably f- identified this too maybe long before I did, that high-grade vintage commons do extremely well because set collectors have a hard time finding those commons in really high-grade because people put, put more emphasis on the stars in those sets. So the stars are always the ones that were cared for and the commons were kind of pushed aside. So finding high-grade commons was always an issue.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say that's that's sort of half true. Um, okay. A lot of times, what you a lot of sets that we see or collections that we see, you'll see the commons actually ended up being in nice shape mm-hmm. and the stars were put together a little bit lesser shape just because of cost at the time. And so as people collected through the 80s, if they were putting a set together, not necessarily something that they may have you know, uh, collected as a kid and then just saved, but when guys were putting sets together in the 80s and the 90s and they were kind of piecing it together you would get cases where they would have the commons in really nice shape and keep those but then they would want to spend a little bit less because to buy a you know a mantle in high grade even in the 80s would cost significantly more than buying a little bit of a off grade mantle right uh, and so the sets sometimes you'd find sets that the commons were all really nice but the stars were a little bit less cuz that was an affordable way of putting the set together and those were for the completists, mm-hmm. the guys who wanted everything complete. Mm-hmm. Um but you're also right that you would we'd run into collections where you know the stars may have been cared for a little bit more and the commons were tougher to find in nice shape. And so there's that too. Um, but it, it, yeah, it's you know the 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 thing about commons is that you know they do quite well when they're in nice shape, but it's primarily because they're not worth the time, the energy, or the effort to go get them graded. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a 57 tops card, you know, not a not a star or one of the tough numbers as an eight or a seven, they only sell for ten to twelve dollars. Right. And so to spend eight to ten dollars to get that card graded, you're not really it doesn't really make financial sense to do that unless you're putting together a graded set. And people do that. Mm-hmm. But we found that, you know, you can get 10, 12, $15 for a nice raw common card um you know if if that's the case
0: yeah the uh i was looking at like you know psa set registry collectors guys that are looking to like build like a 59 top set all in psa 10 condition right so like you know the big attorneys and the 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 doctors and the you know the holding company owners and like these these like deep pocket type of guys and so what i found is that you know i'll see Obviously, the high-grade stars do really well, but then you'll see like a PSA 10 of a nobody, and it'll fetch like four figures easily. Yep. And so yep. those are the kind of instances. And, and the reason why, and I know this just as well as you, is because pop reports are so darn low for those because like just like you said, it doesn't make a lot of cost uh, sense to send something in on the, the hope that it's going to give you a, re- a grade that'll give you a return that makes that that cost make sense. And so that's I totally understand why the... The demand for those high-grade commons make you know like why it, why it exists so that's an interesting point to talk about certainly when we're talking about uh really nice old stuff so gonna move on with it here tell me you know this is this next question is a really basic one but i know this is something that we often skip over sometimes especially with when we're talking and getting to know people but what makes you happy in your current role
1: kind of like what i said before i mean really just talking to people mm-hmm. um you know, I, I very much enjoy talking shop. I enjoy talking about cards. I enjoy talking about people's collections. Um, you know, and, and I think the thing that I really enjoy most is turning it into money for people. Um, you know, knowing that I've got a good product behind me that, you know, we build a really good infrastructure. We've got a great customer base. And then I get a guy that comes to me he's like, I've had these since I was, you know, a kid, I collected them. I just, didn't put them in my bicycle spokes i didn't flip them against the wall i just took care of them and you know and and now i'm ready to part with it because i'm done with it and i want to turn it into money and then getting that email after it's all over from somebody saying i am so thrilled with what you did you did it you know your professionalism you did it quick you did it well and it exceeded my expectations when I get those emails, that's what makes me happy. Is that that I know that I did something good for somebody, and that you know they had expectations of a sale price of something, and based on the infrastructure that we, you know, that we have, we exceeded their expectations. And That's what I get most enjoyment out of.
0: That's really nice. I, I like that positive reinforcement that you did something well, and so they're adding a compliment and adding a praise and letting you know that the work that you've done was superior and they're happy with it. I mean, there's that kind of thing is really important for, I think humans as, as humans like getting that. Cause we're not, we're not robots, you know, like we, we can do our jobs regardless of what we get those things, but when we get them, it makes us even more excited to do our jobs and in turn makes us even more productive. Right. And so, and that kind of just turns into a spiral, you know, an upward spiral. So I, I totally understand the, 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 benefit of getting, getting, a positive feedback from people so important. I mean, eBay locked this down, you know, when they started, the positive feedback thing was a really important thing to get people to do what they need to do to ensure that the customer's happy. But when you, especially when you love your, your role, you love your job, it just makes that so much easier. You know, I, I think it's a really good point to discuss. What's the first thing you think about right when you start work each day?
1: Uh, the first thing I think about, uh, First thing I think about is opening up my inbox and checking the emails to figure out what I have to do first, sort of prioritizing, you know, who I need to call, you know, who do I need to email, who do I need to follow up with? Um, I just sort of jump right into it. You know, I've I've been working from home for 13 years, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, I spent the first five months when I, you know, those first five months with Greg um, traveling down to L.A. three days a week and working in the office down there which was good and challenging, Um, you know, because I was, you know, for years with Huggins and Scott, I would work from my house. I got very used to working from my house. And so my family got used to me being around and everything else. And then all of a sudden I take this new job and I'm a half-time father and husband for, you know, from a full-time father and husband. And it, it created challenges. But, you know, the, the, the great part is that, you know, Greg recognized that I recognized it um, and we kind of mutually agreed that it would be just be better and kind of change my role a little bit um, to to allow me to sort of stay home. And, you know, I, I just get into a routine when I'm at my house and I'm in my home office and the kids are gone and the wife is gone and I can just get more work done more efficiently. Um, so. I just really sit down and get started on what I got to do that day and, you know, kind of line it up and do it.
0: I like that process of having like this kind of autonomy that you can, you know, work knowing that you're going to produce because, you know, we talked about this a second ago, that you you like what you do. So you're going to automatically want to do it when you get up in the morning, you're going to check your email because it's just what you do. You're going to Make sure you follow up with contacts because it's just kind of how you think, how you process. You've been so used to doing this in some capacity for, well, I guess, gosh, most of your life, right? So, you know, this is like a second nature for you. And I, you know, I've worked in offices and I've had cubicles and, you know, I've worked for, you know, um, big companies. And I've realized that those have advantages too. But I found that like personality job fit is so important when you're looking for personal happiness with whatever you do and for some of us guys like you and I we tend to work I think more productively better happier when we're doing it our way like our own we're creating our own brands we're doing our own uh, we're managing our own roles and there's something to be said said for that I know it's not for everybody but certainly I can really appreciate the autonomy that goes into having your own office and working at your own pace and a lot of times you know I, I I can't really say with any degree of certainty, but I I would at least feel partially confident assuming that if I compare the amount of production that I've had in an office on my own to the amount of production I've had say, in a cubicle, um, I I could probably feel comfortable in assuming that I, I get more done when I'm when I'm left alone and I have my own space. So there is I'm not no sure. No doubt in my mind. <laughs> oh, you, you feel that way too? Yes. Yeah.
1: So oh, for for sure, and, and and I've done both. I mean, I you know before I moved out to California when I was. In DC and I was working at Huggins and Scott and I was in the office every day, Mm -hmm. you know, I I would, you start on a project and then a phone call happens and you start on, you know, and then you go back to that project and then somebody comes over and asks you a question and the interruptions just don't allow you to get into the flow of what it is that you need to do. And so there were lots of days where you know i would start a project and i wouldn't even get it done in the you know 9 hours of the day that i was there mm-hmm. because interruptions happen and then you know lunch and then somebody asks you a question and then somebody comes in the store or whatever it is you just get interrupted whereas yeah. when i'm at home i got no interruptions i just you know i can just sit and focus and i've got my tasks and i don't start the next one until the one i'm working on is done mm-hmm. So it just, you know, for me, it's much, much better to to have it this way and and avoid the interruptions as best I can.
0: Yeah, I'm right there with you. And I'm a big man of of checklists. Like I write down what I need to do every day and I, I mark them off as I go. And some days I'll have more than others, but some days I'll have like five or six things and like I'll hope to be done by five or six. But I always try to take like one hour off to go do something away from work to get like refresh so that when I come back, I can have as powerful of a second half of the day that I had the first half of the day. And that's something I've had to kind of grow into. And I'm not sure if that's something that you've given yourself a chance to do, because I know a lot of us uh, entrepreneur types, uh, we tend to work solid hours for like nine, 10, 12 hours without breaks. and, And we have to learn to give ourselves a little bit of time off to break up the day from two to two different sections. Is that something you've, you've identified over the years?
1: You know, um, I don't often do that. I, I, I do find that when I do it, I kind of am thankful for myself. <laughs> um, but there's lots of times where, you know, I just, I start one and then I just roll into the next one. And like you said, I, I'm big on checklist too. I've got, you know, lists of who I need to call and what I need to do. And, You know, I finish one and I'm like, okay, that call's done now. Call the next person and no point in taking the break to stop because I kind of am in the rhythm. I'm in the flow of what it is that I want to do. Um, But at the same time, I do find that, you know, when I do take that break, um, you know, and go do something not related to work for just a little bit, I do feel a little bit more refreshed and kind of a little bit more on task when I come back. Um, so it's probably something I need to work on personally and, and do a little bit more of, um, but if I don't, it's okay too. And Mm -hmm. I just, you know, I oftentimes will take a 10 minute break to go get my lunch and then I'll bring it back to my desk and eat at my desk while I'm doing something else, Right. which it's probably not, it's probably not super healthy, but it's, uh, you know, it, 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 I've done it and I've not done it. It just kind of depends on the day. Um, it's always, it is always nice to take that little break and then kind of feel, refreshed and, and ready to get back into it afterwards sometimes I also find like if I take that break I'm like oh I don't really want to go back to work right now I'm, I'm really enjoying this doing nothing so <laughs> so it kind of it kind of can have both effects on me it kind of depends I guess it depends on the day and depends on what it is that I'm doing so
0: yeah you know it's it's not always a requirement by any means it's just you know everybody's a little bit different in this capacity. Um yeah, I've found myself working well into like three and four and I'm like, Oh yeah, I probably should have something to eat. You know, <laughs> like i oh, yes. like it's it's because then my brain needs to function in in a way to where I can process quickly. And I found that, you know, just as small as a protein bar or a quick protein shake or something to get some energy in me helps me really well to focus and stay keep going, even if I've got it at my desk where I can continue working without taking a, you know, block of time off. So that's I know it's kind of like a tangential, but I thought that was kind of a, a, something I, was, I just wanted to bring up because I was thinking about as we were talking about having our own offices and sort of how we work uh, to give people, I guess, an understanding of kind of how this kind of like this type of work works, you know. Um, but it's moving on here. Um, in your opinion, what sets Greg Morris cards apart from its many competitors?
1: So what Greg sets what sets him apart, A, is that the reputation he's built um, is incredible. Um, the feedback that I got from people as I walked the show floor at the national, um, the people, the the feedback I get from people that I talk to is I buy a ton from Greg and what I'm most pleased with is that I know when I buy it and he says that it's graded this, that I get the card and it's accurate. Um, and that's a really, really valuable thing in this industry because, you know, you've ever spent any time on eBay and you buy something on eBay you never really know what you're going to get. Somebody calls something X-Men or Near Men and you get it and it's got a little wrinkle in it that they didn't see, Mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're, you're frustrated. Um, and so what Greg does really well is, is accurately grade his cards and maybe even a little bit conservatively grades them, um, which makes customers happy. Um, and then the other thing that we do is we break it down further than anybody else. Um, you know, because we sell cards individually um, and we don't mind, you know, we start everything at 79 cents with no reserve and all in an auction format. We're not buying now, no buy nows, you know, no best offers. It's just, we started at 79 cents. We just had a 52 tops mantle as a four started it <laughs> at 79 cents. Um, because you know, it's going to get there. Yeah, you know, yeah. I think it ended up selling for 25 or 26,000. Totally. It started at 79 cents with no reserve. Um, and so You know, I think that's sort of the, the, the main thing that sets Greg apart is that honesty, the, the ability to return anything for any reason, um, no questions asked and, and just a customer base that's super loyal to, to the business.
0: Those are all super important for business, for longevity and building customer loyalty. And like you said, in the beginning, you know, there've been many times I buy a card online and it's like, you know, well, there's two sides to this. You buy, a, I buy a common card that I've, I just wanted to add, and I get it, and it's not in, it's kind of in rough shape. You know, like there's soft corners or whatever. And I'm like, well, that's too bad. I paid two and three shipping, so I paid five bucks for this card. that essentially is in a dollar box, but I just wanted to get a copy of it, but a nice one. And the pictures were, you know, maybe not represented well. Or recently, I bought a card from a guy that PSA labeled incorrectly, and the the gentleman didn't state that 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 was the case and when I got it of course if you had eyes that can tell color you can notice that this card is not the one that's showcased on the PSA flip so I try to process a return all at the end of the day I got a refund but you know it's like it's the one benefit that you have in person or with a very reputable seller that's hard to match online like when I'm at the national I'm able to see what I'm going to buy you know, but if I work also with a um, reputable company that that knows their products ever so well, and they have no reason not to be dishonest in any capacity, um, and in I can see the card in high resolution and see the corners and everything. Those like blow up uh, options on eBay, you can like click on the image and like really kind of zoom into everything, front and yep. back. Those are beneficial f- functions uh, for for any buyer because, you know, a lot of us are very uh collectors are detail oriented types you know we're, we're we're kind of like particular about what we want and so some guys just go for the grade other guys just go for the cards some guys just want a filler some guys want a clean raw example so you have to just be as transparent as possible in any of those arrangements to assume that whoever's buying on the other end is going to be happy regardless and that's that's kind of what i think any anybody who's selling anything on ebay needs to you know uh, embrace that kind of mindset so it's nice to know that greg morris cards does the like um like giving you kind of like a, a grade of the card uh bef- like right on to the um on the auction so you kind of have an idea of what the card's going to be like when you get it in hand and um you know i've kind of like listened on online about you know chatter about different companies and greg morris cards came up on facebook recently like hey i've heard they're pretty reputable but they list the condition. How accurate is that to PSA? And almost every comment was uh, um, positive. And I do say almost because I didn't read them all. So they might have all been positive. But um, I think in the past, I've bought from Greg Morris cards because I've, I'm familiar with the name. And it, because you guys go through so much volume, the probability of me wanting something that you have sold in the past is very high because of the stuff that I collect. So Um, And I've always been happy with his, with the company's service too. So that's really good to know though. I think that does set you guys apart from competitors that you guys focus on those functions. And so good stuff. Thanks for sharing. Um, Tell me this as a leader in the sports card auction space. Can you share some challenges and what's required to achieve greatness in the category? This is maybe a little bit redundant to the last one, uh, but maybe you have some additional points to share.
1: Um, Yeah. I mean, you know, I guess, you know, one of the challenges is getting stuff Mm -hmm. is, you know, going out and and getting people to either a trust you if they don't know you with their lifelong collectibles, um, or what they deem to be their, their nest egg, their future. Um, and to get people to say, okay, I'm going to just send it to you and you guys sell it and I'm just going to trust that you're going to get me the most money for it. Um, but, you know, we've got data and we've got price points that we can show people to say, hey, if you have something that looks like this, this is kind of what we get for it. Um, so, the, you know, probably one of the challenges is, you know, is, is developing that trust factor with people who you don't know yet. Um, but that's one thing I like doing because, you know, I kind of tell people, hey, give us a try. Start small. You don't need to give me your entire collection at, at once and, you know, and kind of jump into the deep end with both feet. Let's dip a toe into the water and see if you like the temperature. And if you do, then we can go, you know, bigger as we get on in the relationship. I, it's really more like relationship building rather than, you know, just a, a quick one and done. Oh, absolutely. Um, and so that's, you know, that's what I like to do. Um, but it is, you know, that that, that is a challenge is, is, you know, sort of getting people to trust that you're going to do what's right for them. Um, and you know, that's, that's the biggest challenge. I think
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. building trust, I think is big for a lot of people. You have to kind of like, you know, you can't, there's a lot of us that use the whole phrase, like, trust me. It's like, well, you know, it's always the actions, like, give us a try and let us prove to you that you can trust us to do this for you, you know, and, and to your point, start small, you know, like send us a card. You know, and if you don't like the results, you know, we don't have to progress forward with this. But if you do, and we're confident you will, then you can send us a collection. Um, I think that's really important. You know, there's like options for uh, for customers to decide how um, uh, how much they want to try to trust you out of the gate to try to test and see kind of how it goes. But your guys's feedback speaks volumes of that. You know, there's there's proven track of of Greg Morris cards. You know delivering results for it's you know it's customers and so um I, I always look at that when i'm a buyer but sometimes i take a risk in buying something from somebody who doesn't have any feedback because i realize everybody has to start somewhere so right. i give them the benefit you know i'm not the type it's like well to get this job you need to have this much experience doing the same thing well somebody has to start somewhere man there's no Is like how are you supposed to get experience if you have to have experience to get experience so um i think it's a really important thing to discuss that's a that's a good answer as a high volume processor, what tools are used to track data and how are goals measured?
1: Um, so we've, I mean, Greg built this infrastructure um, that allows us to, to sell a lot of cards quickly and be very efficient when we do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from that, we've got, you know, the goals are to get as much as we can for every card that we can. Um, but, you know, it, there's a lot of volume goals and trying to say okay we need to list 2300 to 2400 a day um, and it doesn't always happen we go through you know ups and downs and there's times where you know we're kind of scrambling around the office to try and find stuff that's been sitting around in boxes for years to go through it again and pull out things that we might be able to get you know sell individually um, but there's other times where it's kind of we call it when it rains it pours and you just got more stuff backed up that needs to get processed than you know what to do with um, and and literally, it's it's like a roller coaster. Some you know, some days, some weeks, it's more than we can handle, and other days and other weeks, there's you know, time to to go through stuff. Um, so goals are you know, goals are are increasing our profit margins and um, and and just trying to increase productivity as best we can and really just get as much stuff up and out and sold and shipped as we possibly can on a daily basis.
0: Absolutely. This is a good lead into my next question. Um, As part of the C-suite, in addition to managing numbers, do you manage people? And if so, can you talk about how you train them?
1: So I did a little bit of that when I was going down there three days a week. Um, And I spent some time with our employees. But I came in after the employees were already there. We didn't hire anybody new. I was the most recent hire um, from January. And so the employees kind of knew what they were doing um, and know what they're doing. Um, so I don't, you know, I, I don't it, it, at Huggins and Scott, I did a lot of training because we were hiring people a lot. And kind of there was some turnover with our writing and, and photography staff that, you know, because I was the first one there and developed all the processes um, you know, I would train people when they came in, Greg sort of already had the processes in place and the employees in place. So I did a lot of work with them, but, but there wasn't much in the way of me needing to train them because they kind of knew what they were doing.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, that's helpful that helps you stay on top of your job, right? There's like the, yeah. there's the kind of like the one, two job roles of, of, of people in the upper levels of the companies. And one role is they manage their own role. The other role is the ensure that other people are managing their roles. But it sounds to me like in your role, you get to spend 100% of your efforts on portion one, which is just encompasses your entire like day, which is actually helps you become better at what you do in that role. I always thought that you know in business, if you bog down your employees with too much to do, they can't get anything done. And so right. these like upper managers that have to do X, Y, and Z in their own jobs, and then X, Y, and Z to try to manage a, a good team of people it really becomes kind of suffocating in my experience, you know, because you're unable to get your own job done. And so you're, you're spending more time managing, making sure that your team is doing what they need to do and less time doing your own role. And this comes down to obviously hiring, you know, like hiring optimization, right? Like making sure you have the right people on staff. Um, so I think that's good that you're focusing just on your stuff and trusting and knowing that the, the, the team is, is taken care of. You know, you don't have to worry about it. That's really automated. And
1: I would also, yeah, I would also say that, you know, when, when we first talked about the job, it was more of a, of an operations, um, officer to kind of come down and, and put in some processes that needed to be changed back in January, which I did when I was going down there. But since I, um, since I moved back to the Bay area full time and not going down to LA, Um, I would almost say that the, the title hasn't changed, but the role has changed and now it's more, I don't know, call it director of business development than it is operations officer because operations, you know, operations officer is probably somebody who is hands on in the location, kind of working on operating the business. Mm -hmm. Um, and so while that's still my title, I would say that more of my, my job, a more accurate title might be director of business development because that's really more of what I'm doing now.
0: Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, totally understand that. Um, I also know that, as you were just saying, that the COO role in a lot of ways can be that, um, but oftentimes larger companies just have a singular gentleman who's just a business dev specialist. And so um, it sounds to me like your role encompasses both of those things in, in kind of an equal way because you are, you are managing relationships, you know, ex, you know, ex- external stakeholder relationships, but you're also ensuring that processes are are getting done a little bit on, on, on the internal end. Is that, would that be an accurate assumption? Yes. Okay. So those are, those are nice. It's a nice combination. It sounds like it works really well for your personality or with your personality rather. Um, Josh, you know, it's really great to sit down with you. I'm glad we got a chance to talk about this with you and catch up again. Um, it's always great catching up with you. Do you have any final thoughts?
1: Uh, no, I, I just, you know, I, I like talking to you. I enjoy, I enjoy our conversations and no, I'm happy to, happy to come on anytime you're meeting somebody to talk about the industry or the business or whatever. And that's
0: great. That's awesome. I love it. Thanks so much, Josh. Uh, if you're listening, you can catch uh, Greg Morris cards on eBay. Their eBay handle is Greg Morris cards. Uh, check out their website at gregmorriscards.com and um, definitely, you know, look them up. Thank you for tuning in to Radicards.com. I'm your host, Patrick Greenough. Thank you, Josh Wolken, for sitting down with me. And until next time, enjoy collecting. If you like this content, please subscribe. Thank you. Enjoy collecting.